Let's pick the brain of another retirement planner, Larry Pershing from Optimum Retirement Planning, in this, the 81st episode of the Retirement Planning Education Podcast. Welcome to the Retirement Planning Education Podcast, where you can learn all about IRAs and Roth IRAs, employer retirement plans, taxes, social security, Medicare, portfolio withdrawal strategies, annuities, estate planning, and much more. And now here's your host, Andy Panko. Hello, everybody. Thank you as always for listening and welcome. I'm excited about today. We have a new, this is the first of a new format of me interviewing slash chatting with other fellow retirement planners. I'm going to ask them all the same series of questions so you all listeners can, uh, and, and they're common questions that, that folks normally have. These questions were largely sourced from folks in the Facebook group, uh, Retirement Planning Education, of questions they would like to hear addressed by other living, breathing retirement planners. So the, the goal is to have these questions answered by other retirement planners. I'll, I'll bring on one a month and get their responses, their views, so you all can get different perspectives, different opinions. So it's not just me uh, and my views and perspectives and opinions about, about all these things, but you can hear from other folks as well. So looking forward to this. Um, this first inaugural episode of this version of this uh, format is my friend Larry Pershing from Optimum Retirement Planning outside Chicago, Illinois. Larry and I have been friends for uh, three years at this point, give or take. Really sharp guy, think alike, similar types of businesses and what we do, how we do it, who we do it for, et cetera. So uh, really excited to, to have him on and hear his views on things. Uh, just w- sort of warn you ahead of time, not warn, but there are some times where I tried to play these sound bites, you know, the, the cheesy sound clips I've been doing with like the laughs and the drum roll and stuff like that. Well, for whatever reason, I didn't pipe through when Larry and I recorded our chat on Zoom. Uh, so you'll hear some dead spots. It sounded brilliant in my headphones when I was recording it, but just sounds like nothing when you hear it here. So uh, you'll know why if you, if you catch some awkward, silent spots where I might be chuckling because uh, I thought there was something funny happening, but you're not going to hear that, unfortunately. So anyway, I will stop yapping. Without further ado, I bring you my chat with Larry Pershing from Optimum Retirement Planning. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining. We have a very special edition episode today. We are going to chat with another live, living, breathing retirement planner, specifically my buddy, Larry Pershing. Larry? Thank you so much for having me on, Andy. I'm excited to to talk shop with you and maybe hear a dad joke or two. Oh, hold on. Dad, what? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> two artists had a fight. It ended in a draw. It, right? Yeah, you don't see. Oh, did it? <laughs> All right, hold on. In case other people listening can hear this sound effect, um, I have one more for you since that one didn't go as well as I hoped it would. I asked my phone, Siri, why am I so bad with women? She said, I'm Alexa, you moron. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, anyway, but no, uh, Larry and I are friends. We've been members of a what's called a mastermind or a study group. Uh, us and a handful of other folks who were all retirement-focused financial planners slash advisors. We meet once a month virtually. We all live in different parts of the country. And we've been doing this, I think we're going on third year now, if I'm correct. Does that sound right, Larry? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Man, it's been a minute. So I'm excited to have you on. I guess maybe let's just start, if you can give a quick background intro about yourself, your business, et cetera. Sure. Um, well... I guess my story starts uh, just after college. I 
my first job out of college wasn't too thrilled with. And uh, I was actually talking with my now mother-in-law and she's like, Larry, you should consider being a financial advisor. You don't like your current job. I think it kind of plays to your strengths. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay. And I went and checked it out and I was like, oh, this, this actually sounds pretty cool. Like getting to help people. I get to be nerdy with numbers, but also like I'm not stuck behind a spreadsheet all day long. I actually get to interact with real life, breathing human beings. Um, and so I, I went for it and, and got a job in the industry, started out as a pair planner, just learning behind the scenes. And I got so lucky, uh, working, uh, finding the advisors I did find, they were heavy into financial planning. So I got a really good financial planning background from the get-go with, um, which a lot of other advisors might not have had the opportunity for. And, uh, did that for a bit and, and switched firms, got my CFP and, I started to really kind of specialize in retirement planning within the firm. I was kind of like the go-to guy if um, we had a complex question or maybe some tax paying strategy for retirement Roth conversion. Like I was like, oh, like let's let's get Larry's input on this. He does this um, all the time for everyone. And so in kind of becoming that go-to expert within the firm, I started to notice that like, unfortunately, we would have prospective clients come in and like a lot of opportunities were being missed for them, especially around taxes. Um, Andy, I'm sure you can probably relate to this. And, uh, so I just said, man, like there's a, there's a huge need here, um, in the industry for, you know, kind of like a retirement planning specialist, even though a lot of advisors like say, oh yeah, we work with retirees, you know, it, it's like, uh, well, if you do, then why, why are we missing all these, these opportunities to help save folks money on taxes or, you know, think about investments a little bit differently with retirement planning. And so, uh, I eventually went out and launched my own firm, Optimum Retirement Planning, and been in business uh, since 2021, specializing in retirees. And uh, I think that's probably probably a good start for the background. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Thank you. It's it's so true. Lots advisors are a dime a dozen. I think everyone knows that. There's lots of people out there who are uh, call themselves financial advisors. And yes, a lot of them say they work with or want to work with retirees, but do they really do anything different or special, particularly when it comes to taxes, tax planning? Um, vast majority of them, no, they, they don't. So it warms my heart and we are, we are kindred souls, which is partly why I think we, you know, mesh so well and uh, feed off one another well in this, in this group we have, because we do think alike, think differently and, and really try to do things other folks aren't doing, not just because it's a it's a niche or a business opportunity to do it, but because it is legitimately needed by by lots of folks. So, and your firm, Optimum Retirement Planning, uh, just quick rundown: where is it based? What do you do? You know, virtual, not a uh, bit about fee structure, et cetera. Sure. So uh, I live in the Chicago suburbs. I actually just moved from the city uh, to the northern suburbs, Libertyville. If if got any curious Chicago folks out there. Um, I do work virtually with folks across the country. Um, so I got, I think, I think my like furthest away client is Vermont. Um, so Vermont, maybe California, I don't know. I'm in the middle of the country. So whichever, whichever side, probably California, actually the West coast is large. Um, so do virtual with that. Uh, I'm a fiduciary 100% of the time, um, which I think is special, uh, thing, you know, not like broker and fiduciary, just, just straight fiduciary, uh, fee only advisor. So I don't, uh, receive commissions. I don't sell any insurance products, you know, if clients need them, which there's definitely people who need insurance products in retirement, like, Hey, refer them out to someone. Uh, but you know, I'm, I'm not getting compensated for that. And uh, I'm a flat fee advisor, um, just like you, Andy. And, um, let's see what else. And of course, 
specialize in help working with people close to it in retirement. I mean, optimum retirement planning, hopefully that comes across as, yeah, like we, right. we do retirement planning around here. We're serious about it. Right. Exactly. Kudos to that. Hold on. Let me, let me do the clap sound. I don't know if you can hear this, but hoping this, hopefully the, 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 hopefully the listeners get it. Yeah. Um, yeah. If not, I'll have to revisit my, my tech setup here, but all right. So I do have, um, for, for those of you listening and watching, this is the first time I'm doing one of these episodes with someone else on. I did come up with a list of questions. I want to ask all the retirement planners to come on the same question. So you all can hear uh, different perspectives and views on the same points, on the same questions. And thank you to, uh, I did lean on the Facebook group, members of the Facebook group, Retirement Planning Education, to help come up with a lot of these questions. I figure what better place to ask than people who will be listening to this, uh, what types of things you want to hear from people that'll be on. So um, we'll see how long this goes. I really don't know what to expect, but I think it should be good regardless. So I will hit you with these questions and we'll uh, kind of take it as, it as it happens. All right, Larry, what do you think is an area of retirement planning that many consumers overlook or don't give enough consideration to? So, um... Unfortunately, tax planning is definitely one. I mean, kind of just as we talked about, there's a ton of opportunities. And I still see them being missed like today. And I think eventually I keep on thinking like, oh, everyone's going to get the message. Like you're doing retirement planning. You need to do taxes. Uh, but I mean, just a couple months ago, a client came to me and she was like, yeah, you know, I called me up and I said, hey, you know, why, why are you calling? She's like, well, I have a current advisor, but uh, you know, I asked him like, which account should I withdraw money from? And he responded to me, the advisor responded to the client by saying, well, which account do you think you should withdraw money from? And she was kind of flabbergasted. And she basically was like, hey, I'm, I'm paying you to tell me the answer to that, not, not throw the question back at me. Um, but I think probably Andy, your listeners uh, get that message because um, I know you're, you're so tax savvy um, and talk a lot about it. So one thing that a little tip here that maybe not as many people have thought about is uh, treasury inflation protected securities, also known as tips. Mm -hmm. uh, do you yeah. see what I did there? Dad uh -huh. joke. Oh, uh, that that one was for you. Nice. Thank um, so uh, all these are are inflation protected bonds, and I kind of I think the easiest way to understand them is to kind of just compare them to normal treasury bonds. So tips are. Um, sold by the federal government, their government bonds, and the government also sends, uh, sells normal bonds, normal treasury bonds. So normal treasury bond, you know, you get some interest from it, and then the government promises to pay you back uh, once the bond matures. So if we just like keep it real simple, talk about buying an individual bond, uh, treasury bond, when you add up the interest income and getting your money back, you can, and you hold it to maturity, um, you can get a really good idea of what uh, rate of return you're going to earn over time. You, you don't know like for sure, uh, but you can, you're locking in like, Hey, I, I think I'm probably going to get like around 4%, for example, or I think 10 year U S treasury is at like 3.9% around there, 3.8. Uh, so locking in, we'll just say 4% call it, um, an inflation protected bond tip. It helps you lock in an after inflation rate of return. So normal treasury bonds help you lock in a pre inflation rate of return, let's say 4%, but then you know, you got to think about inflation, right? If inflation's 4% and your bond earns 4%, well, you're not really gaining any money. You're just keeping up, right? Um, and inflation, just the idea that your money loses value over time, you know, goods and services cost more. So it takes more dollars to buy the same amount of goods and services over time. Um, so with this uh, normal treasury bonds, really normal bonds in general, you know, you're getting a pre-inflation rate of return on that. But the, the tips you purchase 
uh, gets you an after inflation rate of return. So right now they're giving you, um, I think I saw today like 1.7% for a five-year or 10-year um, tips bond. And that means that you get 1.7% plus whatever the rate of inflation is over the time you hold the bond. So if uh, you, know, you hold it for 10 years and inflation averages 3%, then you get 1.7% plus 3% inflation, which gives you 4.7%. So whenever you are purchasing bonds, you have to think about, uh, there's always inflation to consider in this question. And when you're purchasing these bonds, you need to think, well, you have to guess one way or another what you think inflation is going to be. Because, for example, if inflation-protected bonds are giving you 1.7% right now, but you could get 4% on the non-inflation-protected bonds, well, the difference between those two, 2.3%, that's essentially what the market thinks inflation is going to be over a certain amount of time. And so you need to think, well, is that reasonable or not? Uh, I think personally that inflation is really difficult to predict. I don't recommend people try and do it. I don't think I can do it with any uh, like certainty. But what we do know from the retirement research is that high inflationary periods are really put a lot of strain on retirement portfolios, right? You, you can't spend as, or you have to take more money out of the portfolio just to buy the same amount of goods and services. If that happens, uh, like the 1970s, 60s was, was a tough time for retirees because of that. You also had bad market returns. Tips can help protect you against this because they help protect you against uh, help protect you against unexpected inflation. So, obviously, the past couple of years that happened. Now inflation is a little bit under control, and I'm uh, just want listeners to kind of think of, hey, you know, do I have tips in my portfolio, and should I consider it? Stocks can be great to protect you in the long run against inflation. Um, you know, I like to think like ten plus years. Stocks are really good at that, generating returns above inflation. Um, but in the short to intermediate term, it's it's uh, it's not as much, it doesn't happen as frequently. And so tips can be a great way to kind of give you that short to intermediate uh, term inflation protection for your retirement. And that's just a big retirement risk. So I think, uh, and again, with you getting like a positive 1.7% rate of return roughly on tips, like after inflation, that's that's pretty darn good. Um, so I, I think just something for kind of folks to consider, not not investment recommendation for your, your own specific situation, but um I know I've been talking to clients about and just educating people like, hey, we might want some inflation protection with our bonds, just just as a little bit of like an insurance policy, just in case inflation flares up because nobody really knows. Yeah. Yeah. I, I struggle with tips. I get how they work. My view is, like you said, they're, they're priced based on the market sort of collective assumption of what inflation will be going forward. So your example of the actual 10-year treasury bond is yielding 4%. Uh, you can get a real yield of 1.7 in the tip that implies a 2.3% expected inflation over the long term. What I struggle with is you're still, not you in particular, but like you're still sort of by buying a tip, you're inherently saying, I'm thinking inflation is going to be higher than what the market is already assuming it's going to be. That's when tips end up doing better, you know, better by you and, and, and vice versa. So, um, yeah. I, I struggle with how best to address inflation. I agree with you. Over the long term, stocks have proven historically, at least, to be one of the best uh, tools or hedges against inflation. In the short term, they can do really crazy stuff. Um, tips tips could fill that need, but I still struggle with, man, you're still betting on, you think inflation is going to be higher than the market thinks. And uh, I, I don't know. Can't quite get myself there. But anyway. So, yes. It's, it's legitimate. Can I Can I offer one? Gentle yeah, pushback. Definitely. Yeah. Not, um, not gentle, like plow into me, man. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Okay. I'll <laughs> take, take you down to the show. Okay. So 
you're right. I completely agree with you that there is that implicit bet when you buy tips that you're basically betting, hey, the market has has incorrectly predicted inflation. Yeah. That I think inflation is going to be higher than what the market predicts. And I also agree with you, whatever the market's predicting is the best best prediction out there. Um, it's it's more often than not, you're probably going to be wrong if you go against the market too often. But on the flip side, if you buy just a normal US Treasury bond, you're assuming you're implicitly predicting that inflation will be less than what the market predicts or equal. I mean, if it's equal, then it evens out. It doesn't matter right. what you buy. So on the flip side, it's like you're still making that bet, um, but you're betting that inflation will be lower. You know, I never thought about it that way. I just assumed like buying the normal bond is the default view. You're not inherently taking a view, but you are to your, to your point by buying that instead of a tip, you're saying, I think inflation is going to be lower than market estimate. Yeah. Okay. And again, it's just, you know, as when, when you're working tips, not as great because you got an inflation adjusted income stream. Most people are going to get raises. Like right. if there's big inflation, you're going to get some raises. Maybe it won't keep up quite with inflation, but you're going to get it. Retirees, all of a sudden it's like, Ooh, social security, but like what else? Yeah. Right. What else have I got here? Right. Um, so that it, it's just a little bit helpful for there, at least the way I see it. Yeah, no, great, great point. Um, flip side of that, what do you think as is an area of retirement planning too many uh, consumers give too much attention or consideration to? Well, Andy, it is 2024. Uh, it is. Happy New Year's. And so I'm, I'm going to go with politics here and say that with the presidential election coming up, way too much attention is, is focused on the presidential election, how that's going to impact the stock market. Um, at least historically, Democratic presidents, stock markets done well, Republican presidents, stock markets done well. I even saw something where they broke down, like, you know, if is Congress, you know, you know, split or Democrats have both parties, Repu you know, all the different splits, markets up on average with all of them. Right. Um, and so I think it just goes to show that while the US president, like most powerful person in the world, uh, based on the US system we have, they don't have as much control of the economy as we think. They get all the glory, all the blame, but like uh, the economy is is a slow moving thing. When you implement policies, most policies don't just change things overnight. It, it you know, the economy is like an 18 wheeler. It's not a Ferrari. That, that thing's got a wide turn radius. It takes a while. Um, and so I just like would caution people, you're gonna hear doom and gloom and who, you know, which, I don't care about which side, just whichever side wins, market's going to crash, you know, or market's going to rip, you know, whatever, however, whatever people's political, uh, right. Beliefs and values are. And I would just say, Hey, if you have a long-term perspective on this, this, this isn't that important. If you are trying to trade and, and do short-term investment strategies and sure, yeah, it's important. But if you're a long-term investor, which, um, you know, I, I think you, you, you are, at least I know, um, then, then I don't see it as like really a key factor. It's not something that I, I, like keeps me up at night for for clients and their money um, at all. That's like not not even a thought. So just uh, as we come up to it, remember that market goes up regardless, and it goes down under both presidencies too, because that's what the stock market does. It it jumps up and down on average over time. It it usually does well and and gains you money. Yeah, not to say there won't be short term spikes, blips, whatever. Like like to your point, right? Market always reacts often in a knee jerk type of way. But long-term is what matters for most, or at least people listening to this. Just tune it out. Really doesn't matter who, who wins presidency or what the balance of power is across the three divisions of, uh, of you know, our political system. 
generally speaking, stock markets should go up barring complete collapse of the economy. Um, but yeah, and it's hard for one president to collapse the economy in four to eight right, years. Right, exactly. Um, at least nobody's ever done it before. So <laughs> it's the first uh, for everything. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Um, um, I was just going to say, I do have a bonus to this question too. Yes. Real quick, if, if you want it. Um, I've also, last year, I saw a lot of retirees just like piling money into cash. You know, all of a sudden you're getting like five, five and a half percent, like on cash. It's like, man, this is a sweet deal. Like, I can't resist sort of thing. Mm-hmm. I just want to caution people too. Again, we don't know where interest rates are going to go in the future, but interest rates have risen dramatically. And like last year, you could get lock in, you know, in a 10 year US Treasury bond, four and a half percent, almost five percent at one point. And I saw a lot of people just putting a lot of money in cash. And 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 I think cash, like this rush to cash is a little overblown because we have to remember, like, yeah, you know, we would have killed to lock in, you know three and a half, four percent bond rates, you know, just like two, two, three years ago. And now it's like, oh, psh, like I, I want cash. Um, so it's important to people like have your financial goals in mind, have your retirement spending in mind and know that you might not want all of your portfolio in cash because you're betting on interest rates to um uh to increase, which which may right. or may not happen. Yeah. Agreed. All right, next question. Now, some of these jump around a little bit. Again, these these were crowdsourced. I tried to put them together in as cohesive of a flow as possible, but like this next one kind of just jumps topics. So uh, what are some major differences in retirement planning for single versus single people versus couples? Yep, that's a good one. Um, there's a couple. I think the most obvious is longevity. So if we're planning for if we're planning for two people, there's just a really good chance that someone's going to be alive X years from now because we have two people versus one. And so that's just means you got to save a little bit more um, when you're married versus single. Um, Excuse me. Another thing I think that gets impacted by this is social security. Um, For married couples, I think it tilts the, the odds uh, in your favor to, to delaying social security for the higher earning spouse. Now that's like a generalization, not all there's certainly circumstances that doesn't make sense. Yeah. Um, but because, uh, the higher spouse is social security, um, if you delay it and then the, even if that spouse passes away, the surviving spouse will essentially get their social security stepped up to that higher surviving spouses. You just need one person alive X amount of years in the future to make that social security delaying decision worth it. And again, with two people, there's a lot better chance that someone's going to be alive at age 85, 90, whatever you want to, whatever number you're using will break even like a lot earlier than that. But Point taken that uh, again, it just makes sense maybe to delay that social security decision. Single folks, not as much. It's just you, man. You know, there, there's just one person. It's I think it's actually a lot harder call about delaying um, or not. And I think on the the flip side of that, uh, long term care is another big one. Um, when you're single and you want to, you know, think about long term care, set aside some money from from it. I think it kind of makes a little bit more sense maybe to self-insure everything else being equal if you're single versus married, just because uh, if you're single and you need long-term care, some, some sort of care, like you, your portfolio spending, you can just devote to that or whatever income sources you have, you can devote to it versus if you're married, well, all of a sudden shoot, like if one person needs long-term care, that other person still has all the household expenses going on. And so it's almost like now you're in the situation where you're paying for two households expenses that can be really bad from a portfolio or a retirement planning perspective, can put a lot of strain on your investment portfolio or retirement plan, what have you. 
Um, and so maybe, you know, tilts the odds a little bit more. Insurance can make a little bit more sense for married couples uh, versus singles. Not that um, I'm saying that's the end all be all because uh, I don't know if we'll talk about more about long-term care, but I, I got thoughts on that. Um, sure. Good. And yeah. then uh, taxes. I think taxes is the last one to that, uh, you know, in broadly speaking, in general, if you have the same amount of income as a single person versus a married couple, married couple is going to pay about half the taxes as a single person would. Obviously, it's not, there's a lot of instances where that doesn't make sense, but like we're keeping it simple here. And so that makes tax planning harder for single people because married people usually, you don't have double the expenses. You know, most people don't have two houses that they live in, you know, they live in one, yeah. you can combine expenses. So, um, you know, Irma's like a lot further out with singles, you know, it comes up too quickly at like 97,000, $100,000 of income. Um, and so that I think tax planning is a little bit more difficult with single people versus married, just because it's it's easier to get hit with these stealth taxes and 12% brackets cut in half, you know, you, you can't right. do um, as much with them. Yeah, agreed. And, and just to I think we sort of said it, but none of this mentioned today is advice for anyone listening. This is guidance, <laughs> education. Uh, nothing is specific advice for you to act on or not act on per se. So, and Larry did have all these questions ahead of time. Uh, so he, uh, I didn't want to just throw random questions at him, not just him, but anyone for that matter and stump them. And so these, these were well thought out, articulate answers from, from our friend Larry here. Uh, next, do you think some, many, all people could or should do their own retirement planning? So when you think about it, most people do do their own retirement planning. Like when you look at the numbers, you know, I, I think it's something like around 30% of the people in the US use a financial advisor. I, I don't know the exact figures. And I think it like kind of varies depending on what resource you're looking at. But across all of them, it's like most people don't use an advisor. So obviously, people are doing it um, right now. I think the the complicated thing in there is like the complexity of your financial situation, right? So like, if you are on like the low end of complexity, you're retired, your only income source is a social security, you have no other investment assets, like social security goes to a bank account, you spend it. There's not a ton of financial planning or advice you can give in that situation. Um, on the other hand, you've got like $50 million. I'm sure like 95, 98% of people with $50 million have a whole team of people working on their, because like the complexity just gets dwarfed. Right. Um, I primarily work with people with net worths of between one and $10 million. So I think that's where I'm most comfortable in answering this question. So I'm, I'm kind of like, uh, kind of doing a cop out here, Got it. Yep. but right. I think within that range, theoretically, absolutely. Um, this isn't rocket science we're doing. If you want to take, like you have the, the time and motivation to, to spend all the time to learn on it. I think people can absolutely do it on their own. Um, what I find in in reality, though, is that one, like a lot of people are like, I could do it, but like I work my whole life. I, I don't want to get like a part-time job, like messing around with all this stuff, yeah. you know, and, and worrying about it. And then two, uh, it's difficult when you're, you're, you're practicing on yourself, right? Like you're learning all this stuff and you're learning just for your situation and you're practicing it. Like you'll probably make some mistakes, right? Like early in my career when I was learning... I, I made mistakes and I had other people like looking over me and being like, Larry, that you, you screwed that up, you know, like, don't, don't do that. Um, and so I think too, it's a little bit of like a, Hey, are you okay with maybe making that just, just as you're learning, you know, those one or two mistakes, probably 
not a big deal for most people, but you just, you just never know. So there's a little bit of like practicing and learning on yourself, um, is, is just something that, uh, I see a lot of people basically like worried about, like they come to me, they're doing things great, but they're like, I want an expert to look at me. And I see talk with folks who are doing it great on their own, but they're just like, Hey, like, I just want someone to make like gut check me here and make sure I'm not making that, that mistake or looking over something, right. um, with your own situation. Yeah. I'd agree with that. A lot of people can definitely have the, the ability to do it. Whether or not they have the willingness is a different question. And, and it's nice, you and lots of other folks I know in this relatively small community of truly retirement-focused uh, folks, is we're not trying to make everyone a client. And we'll be the first ones to say, you're doing fine, you don't need me. Unlike a lot of the large household name places where it's all about you just production, 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 get as many clients and assets as you can. Like anyone who can fog a mirror is a potential client, right? We don't want that. <laughs> um, so it, it's nice and refreshing that there there is this growing number of folks out there that are straight shooting that'll say, you know, you're good. Don't need me. It's not worth paying me. You know, you, you're doing plenty fine by yourself, whatever it may be. So um, glad to have come across you, sir. Uh, Likewise, Andy. And I just like piggyback off that too and say it's also really nice when when you specialize like us in retirement planning because then you don't feel the need to i mean it, I, I don't know how some people do it advisors where like they work with everyone because it's like i was talking to a resident today like they're one year one year away from completing residency going to be a full-time attending and they had all these questions i was like i have no idea right. i can't help you but the good news is i know someone who can yes that's all they work with and they know all about the, the crazy stuff that goes on when you're an early career physician. Exactly. It, same. I, I know my lane. I stay in it. I'm real quick to refer people away that, that don't fit right down the fairway of what my focus and specialization is. And it's better. I think it's better for both parties that way, right? Absolutely. It's a win-win. Yeah. All right. Next, what are your go-to retirement planning content sources such as blogs, podcasts, YouTube channels, et cetera? And I'm not forcing you to answer this in any certain way. <laughs> I'll tell you what I don't listen to is that Andy guy. Oh, he's terrible. a jerk. Uh, <laughs> no, no, just kidding. Uh, it's funny, Andy. I, I I do like your podcast. I will say I don't listen to every episode, but I, I pick and choose. Um, I, I really admire how good you are at simplifying complex topics. Like you, you, you walk through and like, oh man, like that made sense. Like, especially your, um, you were talking about, uh, um, Affordable Care Act premiums and how that worked. And I was like, oh, I never thought about it that way. Like, that's that's so good. I, I totally just like listen to you. And then that's how I explain it to all my clients. Okay. Um, but besides besides that, giving giving Andy a uh, little kudos here, um, I think Kitz's is like the number one resource. He's financial advisor and he's uh, amazing with like a lot of the technical stuff. Um, and uh, other than that, I, I don't actually consume a lot of like podcasts, um, retirement planning content. I mean, I like to stay up to date on like current things that are going on. Um, but like, usually I get that just like, I have a wall street journal subscription and get yeah. like the current events going on there. Like if I tax like the IRS, you know, IRS publications like Goldmine, right there, they explain it in details. They give you examples. Um, it's pretty good. I think I will say, um, one 
website that I do really like is Early Retirement Now. And it's this this guy, he's uh, partially retired and he's, uh, I don't know if he's like an actuary or something, but he runs all of his own retirement models and you can use the models he shows you. And he talks about all these different retirement planning topics. He's a little bit more focused on the early retirement crowd, but he usually shows a lot of examples just for, I'll put quote unquote, like normal retirees, people age 65. So early retirement now is like a whole series on, you know, what's, how much can you realistically take out of your retirement portfolio? It's like 50 parts. Um, it's, it's pretty impressive, honestly. I, I find it. Earn? Yeah, I think so. Like he calls himself like big earn. Uh, uh, that's I, how I think of him. I've heard someone else. I, th I think that's what you're referring to earlier time or now. I think someone else referred to him as big earn and it just stuck out that movie um, Kingpin with Woody Harrelson with, with big earn was uh, uh, Bill Murray's character in there. No, no, sorry. Yeah, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> So I think Big Earn, the early retirement now, I think is a play on the Big Earn character from Kingpin, perhaps. But who knows? But maybe just switch. Whoosh, right, right over my head. Um, <laughs> All right. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. But, uh, content stuff, anything else to uh, to add to that? No. Um... All right. So those are some of the general questions that I had and then group members from the Facebook Retirement Planning Education Group had. Now some specifics, more specific stuff about your practice, your view on things. Um, how do you know if someone is a good fit for you as opposed to just them, or I'm sorry, you being a good fit for them? We sort of touched on this, but like, what do you screen for in, in seeing if someone's going to be a good client, you think? God, so really from the, the perspective, client's perspective, the consumer's perspective, like, how do I know this advisor is a good fit for, for me? Um, Oh, interesting. No, my my view on this was you as the advisor, how do you know someone sitting in front of you reaching out to you is going to be a good fit for you, good client for you, makes sense for you. Got it. Okay. Um, well, that honestly, it, it's okay. So simply, if I am an expert in the problems they have, if I, if I can solve the problems they have, and okay. what does that mean? I specialize in people close to and in retirement. So there's someone who, hey, Larry, like, when can I retire? How much can I spend? You know, is there any tax planning strategies I can I can take to reduce my taxes? You know, like Roth conversions, like all that stuff. I'm like, okay, great. This is what I do all day, every day. This is great. I know I can do a great job for them on this. So this is going to work really well. Um, so I think that's like the number one thing. And then really the only other thing is, is do we get along? Um, I, these relate, this is like a relationship, you know, this isn't, uh, we talk one time and then never talk to each other again. You know, it's not transactional. So if I'm going to be talking to this person for years, I want to make sure we get along and like each other. And I'm making sure like, you know, oh, geez, like Andy's calling. Like I, I can't, you know, can't have another call. Like I want to be like, yes, like Andy's, Andy's, you know, lined up. Can't wait to talk to him and hear what's new with him. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I think it just goes back to, yeah, really like, do they have the problems? I'm, I'm an expert at solving. And if they don't, then Great. I'll, I'll refer them out. Like we talked about the, um, the resident that I spoke with earlier. Yep. Yeah, that, that's great. I'll, I'll agree with you just in case anyone else cares. First and foremost, you have to fit what we, what you specialize in. Otherwise, if you're too far off the beaten path, it's like, it's just poor use of energy and time for, for everyone. And the second part's important. Um, I'd rephrase it in my view as the people have to be nice, not be jerks. And, and yes, I, you know, I want to obviously enjoy talking with them. Don't need to be besties, but don't want to cringe every time I see them call. I'll be like, oh, I don't want to pick up or 
granted, we work for them, not the other way around. So they are the client. We are the service provider serving them. Doesn't mean we're indentured servants. Like people shouldn't be treating us like, uh, I don't know, taking advantage of us, being abusive or, you know, expecting unrealistic things. Now, after they're paying $200,000 a year, whatever, you should be showing up, cutting their grass and, <laughs> um, you know, I know we both charge fair, reasonable flat fees. So I don't know where I'm going with this. I, I you know, it's easier. You sort of know it when you see it, if someone's going to feel like they own you. And again, you're one of their servants, like absolutely not just, just pass on them in the first place. Now, granted, that doesn't mean we don't want to provide good service, thorough service, professional service, et cetera, et cetera. But um, just don't be a jerk about it. I'll leave it at that. It's yeah. It's the benefit of owning your own business is you, you know, there, you have a little bit more flexibility versus maybe if you're an employee advisor, it's, you know, right. It's, it's your job. You've, you have to deal with, with anyone, even if they're not nice to you. Right. Um, and when, when anyone can fog a mirror as a client, you kind of have to put up with lots more nonsense. So, yeah. Uh, sort of related question. Have you ever had to fire a quote unquote fire a client? And why you can skip this if you want. I don't know if people are listening and you'd rather not say, but no, no, actually, thankfully I've, I've never had to fire a client. Um, but I think what might be interesting to the listeners is I have been fired by a client. I Ooh. think that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not quite what, what it appears. Um, well, make it juicier than it is just for listening. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Really, really play up the, the, the dramatic scene here. Um, a previous firm I was at, advisor had uh, a lot of clients and the advisor was like, Hey, I, I have too many clients. You know, I, I'm we're, like, Larry, I want to bring you in. You're going to be the new advisor for these clients. And so I was having an introductory call where we we're kind of introducing me. We're going to, you know, pass the baton from old advisor to new advisor. And uh, the client was, was unhappy because he felt like he hadn't been getting proactive service, which, you know, the advisor recognized like, man, I've, I've got too many people. Um, and the client uh, essentially the conversation wasn't going well and the client asked the the advisor um you know do you like do you even know what i do uh, like as in terms of career and the advisor had had no idea and just took a stab at it uh with the question did not know uh the client's career and the client just on the spot and more or less uh said like you guys are fired like i don't i don't want to work with you um and i think that's that's interesting and kind of just for the listeners, like a little bit of how the sausage is made behind the scenes, I think ratios of like clients to advisor is really important because, uh, again, it, like if you're fogging a mirror and taking on anyone you can, advisors want to do that. They want to get more revenue. And, uh, but it can be really easy for them to essentially like overbook themselves. And then some client service suffers for some clients versus others. Um, so I, I just think that like keep that in mind if you're ever looking for an advisor, think about. Like ask them how many clients do you have. If you hear a number over a hundred, you should you should start to to really think about it. Um, because I I think that's like a you know I mean I don't know what the number is going to change for everyone's situation, yeah, but a right. hundred is is a lot of clients for one person um, to handle. If you have a team, maybe you can go a little bit over. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that, Andy? Uh, same. If if you are really hands on, especially with the tax planning, distribution planning, it's a lot more effort and resources and energy than just most quote unquote advisors, which really just manage investments, throw in some light planning here and there in the periphery. Those are sort of the high volume shops where, yeah, they'll have a hundred plus clients where they'll check in their accounts once a quarter, maybe do some trades or rebalancing, you know, have a call 
once, twice a year, go over performance reports and, and show them some flashy pitch book. But that's really it. You can accommodate that higher level of clients because you're not really doing a substantial amount, honestly. When you're really involved in the planning, the distribution, the, the, the tax projections, like it's a lot more work. And if you are a solo operation or you know an advisor with maybe some admin help, you, you cannot do 100 clients. Um, 40 to 60 is probably beyond 60. It's, it's, you know, you're asking a lot, I, I think. Not to say there's people out there that, that aren't more efficient and can't grind out a little more, but I don't know. More than 60 is probably asking a lot. Less than 40 is, is you know, very doable. So those are my thoughts. And, and just observation. So what a lot of you listening may or may not have figured out, like on, on my business website, I have a list of advisors. Larry's on there. There's a few dozen advisors that are retirement focused. All of them are flat fee. It's not coincidence that almost everyone on there is a small and or solo operation. Now, it's not because they're inexperienced or, or anything like that. It's that people, we sort of touched on this, people who, who want to do real planning, really focus on what matters, which is the, the planning, the tax work, the et cetera, not just managing investments, and want to charge a different way, charge such as a flat fee as opposed to percent of assets, you almost have to break away from wherever you're working and go it alone because this structure doesn't really exist much outside of, it's relatively new in the last five years, maybe, give or take. Um, so therefore, the places that do do true retirement planning and do something a flat fee, they're going to be newer operations that people had to start themselves because they don't really exist elsewhere. So anyway, um, bringing it back to most of the people that'll be on this podcast that you'll find referenced on my website are solo operations or small operations for those reasons. It doesn't make them bad or inexperienced. It's just, it's, it's something, it's a new structure. It's a new service focus in the industry, you know, relatively speaking. Anyway. We're the new kids on the block. Something. We are, but we aren't. Like, I want to make it true. Clear. Yeah, we're, It's no. not like everyone came from completely different industries a year ago, and now they're saying they're advisors and, and whatever. Yeah. No, it's not like that. You know, all of us have experience in some form or fashion, either doing advisory work or in other areas of the investment world or, or what have you, and just saw the need and the want to do things differently, charge differently than, than the status quo. And the only way we can do that was to do it on our own because the structure doesn't exist. Fast forward 10 years, it'll be very different. Uh, I, I've seen in the four or five years I've been doing this on my own, a real big growth in folk, you know, people like you and other advisors who, who got into this to do true planning, to do fee structures differently, not just percent of assets. Um, and it's growing. So there will be more opportunities over time as firms like ours grow, as we eventually hire, as whatever. But going back a year, two years, five years ago, you, you almost had to do it yourself because there wasn't options otherwise, unless you want to just plug into the, the, you know, the meat grinding machine. So anyway, enough of that. Although I, I am a little curious about it, Andy, too, just because also one of the advantages of the way we do it is like, there's no two owners, right? So like if you work at a firm, the firm gets paid and then you got to pay the yeah. advisors. Like we're, we're one person, one of the same. And there's that kind of extra like um, profit needed with the bigger firms because yes. you, you got a bigger operation, especially like if you're a publicly traded company, you got shareholders and, you know, executives, blah, 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 blah. Um, I, I just think it's going to be interesting to see like how they adapt to the flat fee model where, you know, it, it's kind of like they're, they're going to have to take a cut or something on their profits or, or, or charge substantially more flat fees, I guess. I don't know. Right. 
Yeah, it, it will be interesting to see. I mean, it's clear as you scale up, as you add employees, as you increase regulatory complexity and compliance needs from getting larger, costs get higher. There's no way around it. When you're a true solo, you, you can be exceptionally lean with your overhead and your expenses such that you don't have to charge a lot to still make a really good personal income. You start growing, the analysis does change, unfortunately. Um, not to say you have to double, triple, quadruple your fees, but if you want to still have the same or you know reasonable, uh, comparable personal take home, you probably will have to raise fees at some point. Not you in particular, but just like in general. So yeah, uh, and 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 we'll see that play out, no doubt. Like my own firm has has grown, and I know some other folks uh, flat fee that started off solos and and have since grown. And and sure enough, you know fees kind of do have to go up because the cost of doing business goes up. Yeah. Anyway, all right. Um, where were we? This, this, we can probably talk forever about this, but what's your view and approach on investment management? And try to keep it relatively concise because I know we can easily burn an hour on this if we want to. <laughs> yeah, you, you, the listener's got an hour, another hour. Um, so investment management, I guess, to, to keep it concise, um, I am more of a, a passive index-based approach when it comes to, to managing people's investments. I'm not a big believer in, in active management. What I mean by that is like, you know, either picking stocks myself or hiring someone to pick stocks. I mean, there's just like an overwhelming amount of data that uh, the the odds are not in your favor. I kind of like to think of, and I explain this to clients this way, like the stock market, you can kind of think of it as the world's most competitive sport. Okay. So when you go and for public markets, at least public stock markets. So when you go into the market and you buy a stock, remember, there's always somebody on the other end selling you that stock and vice versa. When you sell a stock, like somebody else is buying it. That's That's the only way you get to buy and sell stock is it's it's a mutual exchange. Um, that in that, like in the sports analogy, you're you're kind of like the player when you're buying and selling stocks. You're kind of like in the game competing. You're you know like it's the NBA. You're competing against LeBron James or a professional NBA player. And like most of us would never do that because we would we would get our butts kicked. Um, the stock market, it, it's kind of the same way though. Where like you have millions of people's collective wisdom that determines the price of this stock. And and that that's like the equivalent of going up against an NBA player and basically saying like, hey, I'm going to buy this one stock because I think it's undervalued. It certainly happens. And like the market isn't completely efficient. It, it happens, but it's really difficult to do, especially consistently over time. That's why Warren Buffett, you know, is, is that's why everybody knows who Warren Buffett is, because there's not too many other Warren Buffetts out there. Um, or he, he is one of a kind. Um, and And going back to like the index like based approach where you're buying the entire stock market. Well, I look at that more now, instead of like playing the game as a player, you're actually now more like an owner. So you buy an NBA franchise. Well, what's easier? Is it easier to be an NBA player or be an NBA owner? It's much easier to be an NBA owner. You just need to make sure the NBA grows and does well, right? Like that's not nearly as hard of a job as it is to like play in the NBA. So many more people can be an owner if they had the money than participate in the NBA. And I think the same way with like picking stocks versus using index funds, it's a lot easier to own the market. You're going to get the average return of the market, but over time that actually usually end up doing better than most people because they pay a bunch of fees to expensive people to pick stocks. And most of those people fail over time at, at outperforming the market. Um, so that that's succinct. I, I can get more, more into it if you want, Andy, but uh, no, that, I, I think that's good. That hits on the, the crux of it. Um, I'm just trying to look here. I don't want this to run too long. Not that I have a 
want to limit this to a certain time per se, but still got a bunch of questions here. So, all right. Uh, move on. Similar vein. Skip this next question. Uh, what's your view and usage of annuities within your practice? Oh, the, the A word. Um, uh, no, so I annuities are a tool. I think I actually think that the, the tides have kind of turned and annuities get a little bit more bad rap than they deserve, especially for retirees. Um, I'm not a big fan of using them as like an accumulation to like, hey, you're saving money. Like, uh, but when you're retired, especially just a plain vanilla, like hand the insurance company a lump sum of money and get a guaranteed income stream for life. That's that's not a bad deal. And there's uh, some re retirement research that says like, hey, if you want a stock bond portfolio, like you can actually generate more retirement income on average using an annuity, replace the bonds with annuities and then keep the stocks um, for like any certain allocation um, you want. Now, for the most part, I'd say my clients usually don't like annuities just because a lot of people just don't like handing over a chunk of money. It, it, it's it's hard. Like you've spent a lot of time saving that money and then you hand this chunk over. So, but but it certainly works for people, especially people who actually have trouble sticking to a budget. Like, hey, you, you've done well, you've saved, but like, you know, you were kind of shoving away money in the 401k. Um, it was kind of on autopilot. You, you did well, but now you're in retirement. It's kind of hard to like, oh, I need to limit my expenses to like, you know, $10,000 a month, I want to spend 15 or whatever it is. Right. Um, okay. Like maybe we should annuitize a portion of this to kind of like force you into this. This is, this is your monthly paycheck and, and this is it. Um, or another scenario uh, in 2022, uh, a lot of companies for, for pension buyouts, they, in 2022, they were still using the old 2021 interest rates. You could uh, take the pension lump sum and then in 2022, get the higher interest rates on the market and go buy a private market annuity and replace the pension income and still have like money left over. I helped uh, some people do that. So that was like an interesting take on it. So I definitely think they're a great, they're, they're a tool and in the right situations, they can be great and other situations, not so great. Um, yeah. So no, no, like really uh, headline driving, you know, right. it all, it all depends. Sorry. Nothing. Yeah. No, which is the right I mean, I'm biased in saying this because I believe the same, but it is the right answer. It's a tool. You can't definitively say all annuities are good, all are bad. There's folks equally guilty on both sides of the aisle. Folks like Ken Fisher, one of the largest investment managers out there, literally says, I hate annuities and you should too. That That's as boneheaded and wrong as, you know, cousin Eddie, the insurance sales guy who tries to push an annuity on anyone who listens. No, it's, it has its time. It has its place. It's the right solution in the right set of circumstances and the wrong solution in others. So, you know, let's, uh, let's approach it pragmatically, reasonably, and objectively, which you do. So glad to hear it. Uh, similar question about trust. There's lots of questions around trust. Do I need one? When should I get one? Et cetera, et cetera. What's your view and usage, or I guess recommendation around trust? Cause you're not a lawyer, right? So you can't create a trust, but how do you approach it? Yeah, so not a lawyer, um, but I review a lot of trust documents for clients and, and see a lot. Um, I mean, one, I think trusts, like, they kind of have, like, this, like, mystique to them. Like, oh, you know, I can get a trust and, like, all my money is going to be protected from everything. Or, like, I'm going to have to pay no taxes by stepping offshore. And it's just, like, for, for again, most people I deal with 1 million to 10 million, like, you're going to be doing some simple, plain, vanilla trusts, maybe to... 
like on the higher end to save on some state estate taxes, not the federal, because um, the federal is, you know, by it's 2024, maybe even like 14 million per, a person now, 13 million, something around there. Um, I, I think mostly trusts, though, are about control from the grave. Like, hey, if you want, for some reason, there's a lot of really valid, legitimate reasons. I want to make sure that I have my money in this trust. And uh, that way, you know, my beneficiaries can only spend so much because I, you know, uh, I don't have a spend for a child, you know, they, they have a, a drug a problem or something like that, you know, some scenarios where it really makes sense to do it. Um, but really it's, it's control from the grave. One, I think the main benefits of trust and two is it can be simplifying your, your estate plan, help you avoid probate as much as possible or, or simplify the process for it. Now, some States have better probate than others. And so that's where it's kind of leaning on the estate planning attorney to let us know like, Hey, is probate a bear in your state or is it like not really a big deal um i will say though that your estate plan is your last impression you make on your loved ones um you know like first impressions are super important last impressions also not i mean literally you know you're, you're gone and then they, they have to deal with whatever plan or lack of plan you have um so i think it's it's almost too like you're, you're doing it for them not so much yourself just because it can help simplify the process a bit and and maybe give you some control over assets um when, when you're not around if you'd like so i kind of like the annuities they're a tool they're great in some circumstances uh not great in others oh and i guess um i'm talking about trust mainly i'm talking about like living trusts or, or non-irrevocable trust not irrevocable irrevocable usually a little bit more fancy estate planning um that that's usually like a little bit more higher net worth um situations than than at least i deal with so and now for some people too if you have a really simple situation you might not need a trust a trust could be overkill um right. as well but i i do hesitate to to say much on that because i am not an estate planning attorney so there's there's about like sometimes probate sucks in some states so like you get the trust so that you you minimize that as much as possible but others it's like ah. Uh, Beneficiary designate, or like if you have no money outside of a retirement account, retirement accounts are beneficiary designated, pass on a living person, you know, your bank accounts, I guess you, you put some designary, but designated beneficiary on it. So it just goes straight to people and, and, you know, you, you can be, uh, good to go there. So it depends. Yeah. It, it, it depends is the answer to most of these questions. <laughs> <laughs> it should be. Uh, long-term care, what's your approach and view towards incorporating long-term care insurance into clients' plans? We sort of touched on this before. Yeah. So I incorporate into every person's plan that, that I'm Incorporate I'm insurance with. into it or consideration of long-term care events? Yeah. Great, great clarifying question. Consideration of long-term care events. Not, in fact, the vast majority of my clients don't have long-term care insurance. Um, and none of them have, we've never even purchased some that like, I've said, hey, I think you should should buy this. Usually it's they bought it 20 years ago and it's a great deal. And even though premiums are increasing, like we, we look on the open market, we say, you know, your premiums would be like five times what they are you're paying right now. So don't don't get rid of this thing. Or they got it through an employer or something like that, where they got locked into good deals that the insurance market basically underpriced it for a long time. And now they got wisened up and realized, uh oh, we 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 screwed up on this one. Uh so we have to raise premiums a lot now. Um, yeah, so the vast majority of my clients self-insure, and I like to kind of explain this to them as like the old Winston Churchill quote, democracy is the worst form of government, except all the others. 
And I say, self-insuring long-term care is your worst option, except all the others. There's no good options for long-term, for, for planning for long-term care expenses. I think like the least bad of them for a lot of folks, especially like one to $10 million is, is self-insuring. We set aside a chunk of money in your portfolio for long-term care. And then that can also be used for other unexpected expenses as well. So there's nice flexibility with that. Um, and, and again, it's like long-term care insurance is going to like really pay off if one, somebody needs long-term care early on in retirement. Um, but if you have like a nice, long, happy retirement and you live into your eighties or nineties, you need a couple of years, like, uh, you know, if you invest in a diversified portfolio, it's probably going to do better than the insurance, um, that then like paying the insurance premiums all those years, or even like the hybrid life insurance, long-term care policies, um, that are kind of starting to, to become a little bit more popular. Like when I run the numbers, at least I, I'm not really impressed with it. And I, and frankly, I think the long-term care insurance market is broken, because for example, when you buy homeowner's insurance, like your house burns down, you're paying like a couple thousand dollars a year for that. And they're going to hand you several hundred thousand dollars to rebuild your home. Um, I mean, maybe if you're not in Florida, it might be a little bit more expensive, but uh, sorry, sorry, Florida people, sorry to poke the bear there. Um, but you know, long-term care, it's like you're paying for this defined period and there's no, there's no reason why you're only going to have long-term care costs for two to three years, which is what most people get it for. And once you start expanding it to four to five years, I mean, the, the premiums can be, you know, over $10,000 a year. It just gets really expensive. Um, and you're, you're not, you're not like saying, Hey, I know for a fact I'm, I'm covered. I think it would be really nice if they came out with something like, Hey, I'm on the hook for the first two years or three years, like, which is the most common average period people need long-term care. The, what the vast majority of people need it for, but like you cover me if I'm past two to three years, even though that's several hundred thousand dollars, I think that would be something I'd be really interested in for clients because maybe it's a lot more affordable. We can plan and prepare for two to three years of expenses and then they're covered beyond that, but there's no products in the market like that right now. And so you're just saying, okay, worst case, somebody needs long-term care for five to 10 years, you're, you're still in big trouble, even though you got the policy and if it happens later on in life, you might have still been better to not even buy insurance. So it, it, long-term care insurance is only good if you get it early on in retirement, basically is my view on it. It's like that, that's where it is really, really helpful. Um, if, if, when you say if you get it early in retirement, you mean if you have the long-term care event early in retirement? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. It's not a disease or the flu or something. Yeah. If you have oh, long-term care You didn't mean like if you get insurance early in retirement, you meant if you have an insurable event early in retirement. If you have an, exactly. If you have an insurable event. Now, obviously the earlier you buy long-term care insurance, the, the better, but I'd say most of the people who are coming to me are in their mid to late fifties, sixties, and, and they, they don't have it. Now mid fifties can still be doable. Um, but sixties, it, it starts to get really expensive. And like, if you're in your upper sixties, it hurts, um, when you see those premiums. Yeah. Probably cost prohibitive at that point. Got it. Uh, what this, this, this could be a big one, but what's your approach to putting in place a distribution plan for clients? So I'm sure people have heard of 4% rule. They've heard of maybe guardrails. They've heard of just a flat dollar amount. How do you approach it? Yep. So I use something approximating the guardrails approach. Um, I use financial planning software, runs a Monte Carlo analysis, which is just a fancy word. It runs a thousand scenarios, changes some variables in it, you know, inflation, 
investment market rate of returns. And it says, hey, out of these thousand scenarios, you don't run out of money and, you know, 80, 80% of them, 800 of them, you know, you're good. And 200, you, you run out of money or whatever, whatever the number spits out. Um, but what it also helps us with is it, it shows, hey, if you wouldn't have run out of money, if you just made some small, small spending adjustments over time. And so it gives you, I like to call them bumpers, not guardrails. Um, but essentially like, hey, if your portfolio value, let's say you have $2 million, if your portfolio value drops below 1.6 million, you got to take a 5% spending cut. Um, and if your portfolio on the flip side, you know, does really well, gets above, you know, 2.3 million, you might get like a small spending increase, 5%, whatever, whatever it is. I think for most people, they just want to know, am I okay? Um, is my spending reasonable? And the the thing is, none of us can accurately predict like what what the exact amount you can spend is, right? It's it's kind of a trial and error thing. We can come up with a reasonable range for you to spend money in, um, but it's really hard to get more accurate than than a reasonable range. We can't predict the future any more than anybody else. So we come up with a reasonable range. We say, hey, spending is it within that reasonable range? Great, but more importantly, let's make sure you're on track. And if we have a bad market event, my clients know, oh, okay, like. Larry told me portfolio doesn't drop below this amount. Like, I don't need to make any changes. I'm still on track. I'm still good to go. I think like when it's really clear cut like that, that uh, is really meaningful for people. So that's like the spending side. And then there's like the whole tax side of like, okay, this is how much I should spend. And where do I actually like, how do I actually get that? But I don't know if you that, that further that or not. Yeah. Um, no, because that's another can of worms, but, but maybe this sort of ties into it. And I... One question some multiple people had was, what's your sort of deliverable or written plan you you put in front of people regarding the distribution plan? I mean, I might steal your thunder a bit, but I don't personally put forth a deliverable to people. We have a general plan and approach and discuss what the broad strokes will be going forward. But any given year, the amount you actually distribute would typically be different for folks. And to further compound it, like you started to touch on, it's one thing just to say, okay, we need to take X amount of dollars out. When you have different account types, Roth account, traditional pre-tax, IRA, regular brokerage. Then year to year, you got to figure out, okay, which account are we, are we taking that from? What's the tax implications, et cetera? So point is year to year, the distribution plan is, is probably going to evolve and change. So I'm hesitant to say here, Mr. or Mrs. Client, here's your 30-year distribution plan. Here's exactly what we're going to do every year. That, that's wrong right off the bat. So, so I don't do it. I just want this open dialogue. You know, there's some some resources we give, financial planning software. They can they can see reports and things, but the tangible plan it, it's going to evolve. So it needs to be this living, breathing sort of thing. I 100% agree with you that yeah. As soon as we we print that out, and that's why I give them the range of like, hey, this is where you're good. Assuming, and, and then again, there's a lot of assumptions baked into that. Um, you know, like you, you don't want to spend where you can't spend, you know, like, you know, if the roof breaks one year, we, we might need to pull more money out. How is that going to, there, there's all these conversations to have about it. Should we delay social security or not? Um, so many things that go into it, not to say I'm telling them, uh, your spending isn't going to change each year. Cause as you, you made the right point, Andy, like it does. And most people, like if we're delaying social security, we need to pull more money out of the portfolio before social security kicks in, or we want to do a little more travel early on in retirement, you know, the, the variations are endless. Um, but yeah, I completely agree with you that it, it's, I mean, it's hubris to think that like, this is the plan and I nailed it. Uh, 
it, it's it's not going to happen. Things are going to be changed. That's why you need to be adaptable. And and that's I think one of the most important points is just to think about like, hey, one of retirees like superpowers is just being a little flexible in your spending, or and, and knowing if you have that flexibility or not. Um, and if you do, just knowing like you know a small spending increase or not taking an inflation adjustment one year can make like a big difference when you when you stack that on for twenty years. That can make like a huge difference in your plan. Yeah. Um, so, man, we need to disagree more. This isn't as fun. <laughs> right. No, Larry, you're wrong. <laughs> uh, all right, we'll do a f- few more here. We're already hitting about an hour. So, um, how do you balance trying to optimize? Hold on, skip one. What are some tax planning opportunities you commonly come across with clients? Oh, boy. Well, uh, <laughs> A lot of Roth conversions just finished up that season. I've never heard of that. What's a Roth conversion? (laughs) I mean, well, uh, so yeah, Roth conversions, I think is a a huge one, especially for retirees. Uh, A lot of asset location, which is like tax planning and investment planning kind of like mixed together. If you're not familiar with the term asset location just means um, thinking about how investments are taxed differently based on the account they're put in. So for example, if you have stocks and you have growth from those stocks, if you have it in a Roth IRA, assuming you follow the withdrawal rules, this, you get the stock growth tax-free. If you have it in a pre-tax IRA or 401k, the stock growth is going to be taxed at your ordinary income tax rate whenever you, you pull it out. Um, and if you have it in a non-taxable account, like normal um, taxable brokerage account, then assuming you hold the stocks for over one year, you get the preferential long-term capital gains tax treatment. And so the stock growth is taxed at lower rates than your ordinary income tax rate. So, uh, and you know, we can go on with with bonds and blah 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 blah. But basically, just being really conscious of the fact that where I put my investment, or based on which account I put investments in, it's going to be taxed differently. We can kind of put the puzzle pieces together, make them all align, and help ideally reduce your overall uh, lifetime taxation over time. But again, Andy, kind of going back to the retirement plan, there's some guesswork involved in that. There's some assumptions with it. We could be wrong, but um, well, I think the no-brainer is like we want to put the high-growth stuff in the Roth because we get it tax-free. So, right. you know, but whatever we think is going to do best, stick stick it in the Roth. Um, I think there's a lot more of uh, like a debate going on between what what assets to have in uh, pre-tax IRAs and taxable accounts. Um, what else? Filling up the zero percent tax bracket for long-term capital gains. You know, if uh, it, it's roughly where the twelve percent tax bracket is, there's a little difference. But if you have um, unrealized capital gains, you've held it for over a year, you can sell it, qualify for the long-term capital gains tax treatment. If your income is below a certain amount, your taxable income, uh, you pay zero percent federal income taxes. Remember, there's still state income taxes, which can be you know a whole different ballgame. Uh, but doing a lot of that with people, helping them avoid IRMA. That's another big one, Irma Medicare. Actually, I, I don't even know what Irma stands for. Income-related Medicare adjustments? Income-related monthly adjustment amount. Amount. Nailed it. Thanks. Still, still got some stuff to learn from Andy. That was impressive right off the top of your head. Um, if I were to have a third daughter, I'd name her Irma. <laughs> she, she would not be well-liked. Um, no, probably not. Age 65 and over. Especially since the way I'd have to spell it would be I-R-M-A-A, like the Medicare acronym, Irma. So. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think, and the whole point with that is if you go $1 over these Irma thresholds, your Medicare premiums increase by hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars a year. 
and it's only for one year. It resets each year, but still, uh, spending an extra dollar and getting taxed a thousand dollars is not a fun place uh, to be in. And um, I think the last one, which I is actually just doing a big project with this, is is helping people switch to more tax efficient funds. Um, you know, a lot of people before. ETFs came around, exchange traded funds, there was mutual funds, and mutual funds um, for various reasons can kick off a lot of uh capital gain distributions. So basically they the, the and mutual fund company sends you uh income and, and it, it you have no choice in the matter. Like you just have to recognize income this year. That can really hurt um ETFs because of the mechanics of the ETF. You know, they can hold the same investments but they don't have those capital gain distributions. Now you have to pay the taxes eventually on your capital gains, but you get to choose it. And that's a big advantage to them. Uh, so kind of helping people think through like, man, I've held this fund, you know, maybe S&P 500 fund for 15 years. Uh, I'm getting killed on these capital gain distributions. Like I don't want to sell anything. I'm paying, you know, or I'm recognized like a hundred thousand dollars of income, you know, paying tens of thousands of dollars in taxes. This is no fun thinking through a strategy to help uh, change that situation for them um, is is kind of some of the big ones that uh, that come to mind. And this is interesting because everything you just said in response to this question are all things that majority of the, the, the big box brand name national places will not get into, advisory places, I mean, will not get into. They will tell you, we can't do tax planning can't give tax advice, you know, wh whatever a combination of those words they'll say they can't do. Yet these are very important things that probably everyone listening, multiple of these topics you just mentioned can or will apply to them at some point. And, and this is a, a big part of what's different, what's unique about real retirement planning, especially those with a tax focus, as opposed to, again, the, the name brand places We're like, no, we don't, we can't do that. We don't do that. We just touch investments. Uh, it's, it's, so interesting because you and I think like this all the time, sort of the core of what we think about other places. It's, it's an afterthought at best to think about these things. So anyway, um, preach Andy, preach. Uh, just try and try and let me get off my soapbox now and get back. To <laughs> hey, I'm with you. And I guess I should say withdrawal strategy too. That reminds me, I do a lot of like, Hey, should we take money? We, we need to spend X amount of dollars this year. Where are we taking it from? Um, and that, yeah, ties into to all of this. Yep. And yeah, it's frustrating to see when it's like, especially I, I you know, get it. I one client come to me, they're 70 and they had all their money and, you know, like million and a half dollars in pre-tax IRA had not done a single Roth conversion ever. And I was just like, you, we, we could have done so much if right. we had met a couple years earlier. And like, it's like, yeah, yeah. You just want to shake some heads sometimes when you see yeah. people not, not fully maximizing tax advantages for for folks which is a perfect segue to the next question so my view about a lot of these tax things is optimization if, if it's not going to completely make or break a plan if you already have a good plan in general you know your expenses relative to what you saved etc um these tax planning things could definitely make it better by not doing this tax planning, you're likely not going to completely derail yourself. Like the person with the million and a half dollar IRA who didn't take advantage of doing conversions or getting ahead of the, the taxability of that, he or she probably isn't going to be broken destitute because they didn't do conversions. Can they make their plan better with conversions? Without a doubt. I'm, I'm confident in saying that. So with that said, 
Next question. How do you balance trying to optimize clients' plans without getting unnecessarily complicated and focusing too much on small things? And I'm not saying tax planning is small things, but hopefully you get the gist of that, that question. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, one, it is talking with the client, letting them know if there are any complexities or, or drawbacks. So just like a really simple example, uh, you want to do a backdoor Roth IRA contribution, which is you contribute money into a non, or make a non-deductible contribution to a pre-tax IRA account. So you're basically making an after-tax dollar contribution to the pre-tax IRA. And assuming you follow some rules, you can do a tax-free Roth conversion into a Roth IRA. And if you have income over above a certain limit, you can't just directly put money into the Roth IRA. So this two-step process gets you around that income limit. You can get money in the Roth IRA. But if you do that, you have to file form 8606. Um, it is 8606, right? Andy, am I... Okay, good. Yeah. So my fourth child is 8606. <laughs> well, let me tell you one word I will never name my child is form 2210 because that thing oh, scares me. Oh. oh man, underpayment penalties rough. <laughs> uh like try and understand that. Um have you ever done a podcast episode on no, because it, you really can't. That's something you need to have up visually and like step through line by line on screen like you can't really verbally go through that form uh, you can at a high level but you can't dig in much more than like summarizing in five minutes because it's going to get way too off the rails but i did think about that like doing a live not a live but like a recorded video of stepping through piece by piece of that form i think that would be helpful at some point i i would watch that um but uh anyways oh, oh yeah so complexities yeah so like going back to the 8606 just letting people know like hey you're, you're gonna have to file this form or especially sometimes you you make these after-tax uh contributions into the pre-tax ira or the traditional ira and you can't do the tax free roth conversion because you have other ira money and maybe you anticipate in the future you'll be able to do this but so you have all this after-tax money building up you need to file this form 8606 each year and then when you take ira distributions and so i'll let people know like hey this is this little extra form and some of my clients do their own taxes and they're like, oh, thanks so much for telling me. Like, I, I sure I can, it's gonna like increase my after-tax wealth by doing, you know, this six, $7,000 a year, but like, I don't want to deal with the hassle. Um, so it, it, I think one is just letting people know about that. And, and two, being humble that like, especially with Roth conversions, you have to make um, assumptions about future tax rates and like, that's anyone's guess, right? I mean, I I personally, and I, I tell clients, I think tax rates are going to raise, like a, go up a little bit, like beginning 2026, they're going to revert. I think that's like a fair baseline, but like reasonable people can disagree with that too. Um, some people think they're going to weigh up. They could also go down, you know, the US could implement a, a national sales tax, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, so uh, I think kind of just, just being humble and, and realizing that like sometimes when you, you try and over-optimize in the tax situation, you're really just making assumptions that might not turn out to be true. And if you have like even a little humility and be like, man, if, if this one assumption changes this, this tax planning strategy and going from a benefit to a negative, should we even, like there's a risk to this. So should we be doing this in the first place? Yeah. I, I really like your view again on bias because I feel the same way. Um, but a lot of this especially tax planning, when we're trying to potentially save taxes over the next 20, 30, 40 years, there's a lot of educated guessing that goes into this. With that said, you need to be humble and have humility. And anyone who says this will happen, or I can save you $200,000 over your lifetime by doing conversions, or I know this is going to happen, 
they're lying and they're probably trying to sell you something. So, you know, run, don't walk away from people who claim to be able to know what the future holds or will guarantee or kind of loosely guarantee or put a paper in front of you saying, look, again, you can save $200,000 or you will save $200,000 in taxes by doing this. They're, they don't know what they're talking about or they're way too dangerously confident in their abilities to guess the future. So now, Andy, I think I might've found something we slightly disagree upon here. We'll go for it. Okay. I, I will show clients like, Hey, I think we do, you know, Roth conversion, filling up the 22% tax back for the next five years. I, like rough estimate. I think it could save you maybe a hundred thousand dollars over your, your lifetime, whatever that is. Now I explain to them, like, this is an educated guess, but I want to show them that like, this is va- this is potentially valuable and something we need to talk about and motivate them um, on to to do like this. There's a potential there, so I will show them some figures, but it does come with a qualification because I agree. If someone's like, this is going to save you, like, yeah, that that's they they don't understand what's going on or they're right. trying to sell you something. Yeah, no, great point. I know we've discussed this offline before, but yeah, I'm I'm I probably lean a little too far to the point that some clients and people may be like, man, he's, he's just, just a cop-out answer, but I'm reluctant to put in front of people projections saying you could potentially save X amount of dollars by doing this over the next you know, 30 years. I, it, whereas you do, and I'm not saying that's wrong by any means. I, I'm just like, I'd, I'd much rather just lean purely on like the caveats and qualifiers. Like, I believe this will help. And here's the circumstances under which it will help you by how much exactly, I don't even want to try to put a number on it. Now I have software that does, like I, I use eMoney. I, I know we talked about this. And it will do a projection based on lots and lots of assumptions. So I'm just like, ah, I don't even want to, I don't know. I, I Maybe I should start. I, I think I like your your view is a, a good approach. Do put something in front of them, but heavily sort of caveated and qualified around what it means and how it could and couldn't play out as, as proposed. So yeah, good point. Um, reasonable people can disagree about it too. I, I don't know if my way is the right way, you know? Right. And we, we have reasonable disagreements. Like I'm not saying your way is dumb. You're not saying my way is dumb. We we both see each other's point and for our own reasons have slightly different takes on it, which which I think is, you know, a very healthy way to go about it. So if not, I wouldn't have invited you on (laughs) (laughs) or or I wouldn't let this episode air anyway. Um, Andy, did I tell you how much I love IULs, Index Universal Life Insurance? They're the best. (laughs) You over, done, click, no. (laughs) Uh, Next, how do you help determine if clients have enough for their retirements? This is a big one. So it it, it goes back to using the the financial planning software to run that Monte Carlo analysis, run a thousand scenarios, see different range of possibilities and see what's like a realistic... Um, amount for someone to spend based off that scenario. Um, I mean, now there's a lot of assumptions that go into that rate of return, inflation rate. So I want to make sure that uh, when I when I'm using this, I'm thinking again. There, there's a reasonable range to spend here. That's where that's what I, at least I think of my job. I don't think of like when you say how much can you spend, people think an exact dollar amount. And now people ask me that, and I'll tell them, hey, I think like. The maximum you can spend is is you know X amount, maybe ten thousand dollars a month after taxes, inflation adjusted, blah blah blah. Um, but I'll always caveat that with like, look, I can't tell you the exact amount. We're going to start on a range and and come up with a reasonable amount to start with. And again, going back to the the bumpers of like, hey, I think we we can start with this spending plan, make adjustments as as market returns happen, and, and just know that we have to think about it. But uh, one thing I think we definitely want to, or 
what can get missed a lot is like other income sources, making sure including those pension, social security. Um, and sometimes I like for clients when they're really feeling like, like, I think they can retire with their income goals. They want to retire, but they're like, they're like, I, you, you gave me all this great stuff. Like, I don't really believe you. Um, as I like to actually, uh, quantify, you know, estimate the value of their social security and annuity or, or pension income. Because a lot of people, like I'll, I'll have someone who, um, maybe like there were two teachers and they're going to get like $60,000 from the state when they retire and they want to spend like a hundred thousand dollars and they have like $1.5 million in their portfolio. And like most financial planning software is going to be like, yeah, like you're, you're good to go. Um, you know, if they're like 65, something like that. Um, but they're like, man, like I just, I don't know. I'm feeling uncomfortable about this. Sometimes showing them like, Hey, you have a portfolio worth 1.5 million. Plus if we calculate the value, like if we were to go on the open market and say, Hey, I want to buy an annuity worth $60,000, that's going to cost you like $2 million. So really you have a $1.5 million asset you see, plus your annuity, your pensions are worth another $2 million. So really, you, you know, if you have no liabilities, like forget about the home for a second, you have a net worth of like $3.5 million. And that kind of clicks like, oh shoot, like that income stream is really, really valuable. Um, yeah, that's, Great. that's. And um, piggybacking off of that, this, this was a common question. Now, not everyone's in this position, but for those that are, it's, it's, it's real. For clients that do have enough or even well beyond enough, how do you help them get over the common emotional hurdle of not wanting to spend their nest eggs? You know, going from a uh, accumulating to now having to not only not put money in, but you're not taking money out. How do you help people with that? So honestly, I struggle with it. Um, I, I do what I can. I nudge them. Every meeting, I reaffirm, you can take more money out. You should take more money out. Um, I may share some stories with them about people who retired. And then, you know, unfortunately they had a short retirement. They got a health issue, uh, to, to kind of help, help do something. Um, one client, uh, she had more than enough money, but she just couldn't, cause like she had, you know, 30, 40 years of building a habit of saving, like just could not spend her money. And we eventually decided on actually getting her to purchase an annuity and she annuitized a bunch of it. And then it was like income coming in and she felt good about it. She was like, I kind of have to, I have to spend it. Um, so that's one like really creative out of the box way. Uh, but I think most people that that wouldn't really work for them. Uh, but I, I honestly think though, that what I found is that most of the time after a couple, like it's really uncomfortable the first year, the second year, it's less uncomfortable the third year. And like by year five, they're spending, you know, they're spending freely. Um, they're, they're feeling good about it. It's just hard to break those habits. It just takes time. And I think really just setting the expectation of, Hey, it's probably going to feel uncomfortable. It's going to be hard for you actually. And you're not going to spend as much money as you can the first year. I'm going to encourage you, but over time, you're going to get better. This, this is a skill just yeah. like saving money is a skill. I think spending money is a skill, um, that some people need to learn. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I agree. That is a tough one to deal with. Um, and w with time, I think people get more comfortable and accustomed to this new stage of life and, you know, habits start to change and et cetera. So, uh, on the other end for clients that don't appear to have enough based on your plans or projections, how do you help them modify, adapt, manage, et cetera? 
Uh, first, I'm very clear about it. So I think it's really important when someone comes to me and says, hey, Larry, I want to like retire next year, spend this amount. Can I do that? You know, if I run the numbers, I'm like, you know, no. And, and again, with retirement planning, it's difficult. I I want to set clear expectations that honestly, my professional recommendation is no, but there's always trade-offs to make. And, and so sometimes it's about, well, what can we do to get you retired to show you that like maybe it is you can't fully retire, but you can retire part-time and work another three years. So coming up with options and trying to think through things, because a lot of things in retirement planning are trade-offs of, hey, you know, we can, you know, like we also like, what, what's your risk level? Are are you okay with with maybe, you know, having to take a big pay cut later on in retirement? Some people, they want to make sure they can sustain this start, uh, standard living for the rest of their lives. Other people are like, you know what? Life is short. Like if, if I... I, I'm willing to build in the plan that like I spend less money later on and we can do that. It just decreases your margin of safety. Um, but yeah, so I want, I think it's just really important to set expectations that, Hey, you're, you're not on track and, and letting them know. Uh, Cause I think it can be easy. And I I've seen it where, uh, if, you know, we get, we become advisors because we want to help people. We want to be the good guys. It's fun to tell people they can retire. It's not fun to tell someone, yeah, you've you've worked really hard over your career. We need to we need a little bit more. We need to do a little bit more before we can get you retired. Um, so being crystal clear about that, but then to coming up with options, strategizing on ways of, of hey, you know, can't yeah, can we do that part time? You know, maybe we can get you partially retired, or um, uh, yeah, I, well, actually, that, that yeah, partially retired. I mean, we can we can talk about hey, do we are we okay taking a little bit more risk in the portfolio, sorts of things. But that's that's kind of gets into risky business um, there. So I don't know if I would really uh, say that's a common option. But but yeah, just just thinking through the trade offs um, on things with with folks. Yeah, do we do we want to account for inflation adjustments each year, or do we want to uh, maybe say hey, we're okay not taking inflation adjustment for the first ten years of retirement if I can retire. A year or two sooner. Um, so all trade-offs, yeah, 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 makes sense. Final couple of questions. If you can, and this is a tough one. If you can get a, give only one piece of advice or word of wisdom to listeners about retirement planning, what would it be? And assume you're talking to average folks, not you know, not other advisors here. Yeah. Um, don't don't lose the forest for the trees. What I mean by that is. In retirement planning, it's really easy to get sucked into all the numbers and, you know, what's a sustainable amount to spend and how can I reduce my taxes and how should my investments align to create a retirement income strategy and like all this stuff. And you can easily forget that like, hey, at the end of the day, like this money is to help you live your best life. And, and particularly your time is your most valuable resource. So I often find that uh, folks and and guys, I'm, I'm just going to say it here, this, this more frequent with men than women that like, I'm just going to retire and like, it's going to be awesome. It's like, well, so what are you going to do in retirement? Like, well, I haven't thought too much about that. I'm like, you, you, you're going to have a lot of time. So make sure you spend, a, like that should be your number one priority is figuring out like, especially if you're hiring an advisor or thinking about it, uh, how are you going to make the most of your retirement? How are you going to spend that time that's going to be meaningful um, and, and give you satisfaction is, is my number one piece of advice. Uh, for people and the numbers, you know, yeah, those are important, but at the end of the day, they're, they're to support that objective of making the best use of your time. 
Yeah. The, the non-financial aspects of retirement are as important, if not more. I mean, you have to have the financial stuff, at least the basics ironed out, but you, you started, you know, you were touching on this, finding ways to fill your time, finding something with meaning, purpose, fulfillment, how are you going to spend your days? What's going to bring you satisfaction, social network, connections, et cetera. That can, that can be a real damaging shock to the system for those that haven't planned, just quit work cold turkey after 30, 40 years. Say, oh, now what do I do? Um, and there's not necessarily an easy or best way to go about addressing that and planning for that ahead of time. But it is something that needs to be worked on and addressed, just like the financial aspects do, because it, it, it could be quite a doozy to, to not have those things fall into place. Uh, 100%. And I think, too, that... Uh, oh, just one up at me, yeah. Andy. Uh, say 111. Go ahead. Say 111. <laughs> 121. Oh, you got, uh, got me. <laughs> I, I would just... I like to actually give the analogy to people of like you graduate college and your whole life you've gone to school, you know, you're supposed to go to school. And then it's like, Oh shoot. Like I have to go find a career or retirement's even harder because you retire. You've been doing that career for 40 years. And then it's like, there's no should, or it, it's all on you to figure out. And it's also okay to like, you're going to experiment and you're going to find some things you like. Like it's there's, there's a natural like experimentation process of like, Oh, I thought volunteering would be really awesome. And then like, you know, maybe you should try that for five hours while you're still working. Cause some yeah. people are like, man, like I thought it'd be awesome volunteering at the pet shelter. And like, actually I got a bunch of dog and cat pee on me and it sucked. And like, right. now That's I'm like back job, to square one. Right. Don't get paid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Fair point. And finally, what question do you think I should have asked, but didn't? And what's your answer to that question? Ooh, so this was the hardest, uh, one that that you sent me over. I mean, I was I was kind of shocked you didn't ask me uh, what my best dad joke was, Andy. Um, what's your best dad joke, Larry? Well, I I gave it to you earlier with the tips. Okay. Um, <laughs> you worked it into the you know casual flow of conversation. So well done. It, yeah. No. I mean, I honestly, I when I looked it over, I, I thought you did a really good job covering all the bases. Um, I, I honestly couldn't think of anything that I would I would change with it. And I think especially if you're interviewing other advisors, everyone's going to get to see different ways people answer the questions. And, and it's really well thought out. So I'm okay. copping out of my last question. And, and this, on, this wasn't my doing. This was someone in the Facebook group brought it up. I was like, wow, that, that's brilliant. I didn't think of that, you know, to ask you what's something that I should have asked but didn't. And I thought about it, like, I don't have an answer. Like, that's a tough one. I don't know how, how I'd come up with an answer, but uh, so I don't blame you for not having a response. I just thought it'd be interesting to put it out there and, and see what others say. Um, anyway, okay. So Larry, wrapping up here, if uh, people want to find out more about you, where can they go? Do you have any, uh, you know, website, YouTube, blog, whatever? Yep. So uh, I have my website, optimumretirementplanning.com want to schedule a meeting with me, meet, certainly do that. Uh, I also have some of my own educational content out there. You know, I'm not, not definitely not trying to compete with Andy, more like uh, compliment him, supplement his wonderful uh, educational content. I have my own Facebook group, Roth Conversions and Retirement. Uh, so if you got Roth conversion questions, check it out. And uh, I also have a YouTube channel called Two Minute Retirement Planning. I'm going to do a lot with that. Um, this year I'm having a lot of fun with video. So that's another way to, to stay in contact, see, see what's up with me. Um, those be the three main ways. Awesome. And, and the more, the merrier, I like to think the stuff I put out is good. There's lots of other folks, yourself included 
that say and do and write a lot of really good stuff, even if it's the same topics I've covered or someone else has covered, there's always unique twists and turns and, and viewpoints coming from other folks. So um, for what it's worth, I mean, I, I'm in, in no way, I encourage you and everyone else who, who's willing and able to make good content to, to do it. You know, I'll never feel challenged or endless world out there of people who are good at saying and communicating and explaining things. Uh, there's always room for, for, for more folks like that. And you're one of them. So thank you. Hey, my pleasure. I, I appreciate you, Andy, for having me on and, and really starting the whole, uh, at least retirement planning content idea in my head. I, I saw you doing it. I was like, looks like kind of fun. And, and it's really great when you get like a comment, like, Hey, this was really helpful content or something like that you know, makes my day. I'm like, oh, now I just want to make more and, and get, you know, get that again. Like somebody else saying, oh, that was, that was good. Oh, hundred percent. It's, it's, you know, the feeling, I mean, you, you say you write, you record something and you just put it out there to what feels like an empty audience. Um, especially when it's like videos on YouTube or something, right. I mean, you may get some clicks, people like it, but otherwise you don't know how much people are digesting it, how much it's resonating with them. And one day someone reaches out to you, whether it's through Facebook or an email, like, oh, you know, this video you did really helped me understand X, Y, Z. It's like, wow, that's when it all becomes worth it all the time. And what seemingly, you know, thankless energy you put into creating this stuff. Uh, it's like, okay, people get it and they seem to appreciate it. So I'm, I'm going to keep going. 100%. And it's always up there. So like, yes. it, it, you know, it's not all one to one. You can help a lot of people. Even when you know you make it, and then it's it's there for people to consume when when it works for them. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Larry, thank you very much. Um, how do I wrap this up now? Oh, for, so for those who who haven't already, definitely check out Larry's uh, website, his content sources, also the suite of retirement planning education sources, the Facebook group, YouTube channel, and this podcast. Obviously, you're already aware of. And uh, that's that. Thank you all for watching. Thank you again, Larry, for being on. Give Andy that five-star rating on uh, Apple Podcast, people. Oh, yes. And not just a five-star rating, but a, a written review as well. Apple really likes that when that happens. So thank you. Appreciate it. All I'll right. get on that. <laughs> yeah, you better. Thank you, everyone. <laughs> right. Appreciate it, Andy. Bye-bye. The information discussed in this podcast is only general explanations and education. It is not specific tax, legal, or investment advice. Before considering acting on anything you heard here, first consult with your tax, legal, or investment advisor. Thank you. Thank you.